0: yes hello welcome back to ultra culture episode 125 that is five times five times five for people who care about that kind of thing my guest today is robert rosenbaum and we had an awesome conversation he has a new book out on zen called that is not your mind zen reflections on the Surangama sutra he is a lifelong meditator and neuroscientist and Yeah, we had a great time. Here's a little bit more about him. Robert Rosenbaum, Ph.D., began Zen practice in 1971. Between 1989 and 2010, he studied with his root teacher, Sojin Mel Weitzman. After receiving lay entrustment from Sojin, with encouragement, Bob established the Meadowmind Sangha in the Sierra foothills and participated as a founding member of the Lay Zen Teachers Association. He's taught at numerous sanghas in the United States, Australia, and Finland, in 2019, he received Denkai in Ordinary Mind Zen from Karen Trezano. Bob found a natural complement to Zen in the Taoist practice of Dian, Wild Goose Qigong, as taught by Master Wei Lu in the lineage of Grandmaster Yang Meijun. In 1991, Master Lu authorized Bob as a teacher. At her request, he brought Dian Qigong to numerous venues in the USA and around the world. He continues to teach master classes and train teachers at Wenwu School in El Cerrito. After receiving his PhD in clinical psychology in 1980, he divided his time between clinical neuropsychology, brief psychotherapy, and behavioral medicine. He was a Fulbright professor at the National Institute of of Mental Health and Neurosciences in India. Working at Kaiser Permanente with his colleagues, Moshi Talman and Michael Hoyt, he pioneered groundbreaking work on single session psychotherapy working with colleagues in neurology and medicine, he innovated programs in mind-body medicine, including Qigong and meditation programs for patients with chronic pain. Super interesting guy, somebody who has you know, not only been a meditator for 50 years and deeply studied the spiritual side of things, but also neuropsychology and knows what's going on in the brain, or rather perhaps knows how little that we actually know about what's going on in the brain during meditation. All right, you are really gonna enjoy this. But P.S., if you're interested in meditation, magic.me has a brand new course on meditation just out now. A new mega course, Mastering Meditation. The best in my, in my ever so humble opinion. I know I made it, but I, I will stand by the statement. The best class on meditation on the planet, at least on the internet. Outside of physical exercise and eating well, meditation is the one thing that you can do for yourself that will become an investment in every single area of your life. Whatever you do, it will make you better at what you do. It will improve your intelligence. It will improve the quality of your sleep. It will improve your mood, your relationships with important people in your life. It will improve your sex life by improving the quality of attention. It will even, as new science is beginning to show, Potentially lengthen your lifespan as it will actually lengthen your telomeres, your genetic markers of aging and your lifespan. Crazy stuff. If that's not an awesome sales pitch, I don't know what is. It will literally improve every single area of your life. And in addition to that, it will be more pleasurable and more fun then like 80% of the stuff that you're doing right now, like video games, drinking, whatever it is that you do to escape from reality, I guarantee you meditation is not only better for you, it's a whole lot more fun and feels a lot better and is a whole lot more rewarding. You could be saving potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years just cutting that stuff out and finding something even better. All right, it's at magic.me. Mastering Meditation, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Scroll down on the front page to the list of courses. It is the one with the animated woman meditating. Mastering Meditation, I will see you in class. All right, here's Robert. Good to meet you. Good to meet you as well. Thank you for being on the show. You have a new book out why don't we just do. why don't we just start off by by telling us about your new book and who you are?
1: Okay, my name's Bob Rosenbaum. Uh, I am who am I? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Josh told me that we have a freewheeling conversation. So <laughs> uh, actually when I, I thought of freewheeling conversations, I thought of a verse from the Tao Te Ching, which is um, 30 spokes project from a hub the center is empty so the wheel can turn uh-huh i i, I love that uh, quote and when you ask me who am i uh i sometimes have started off various presentations with that question and i've tried uh having a clip from jean valjean singing in les mis And I've tried using a cartoon with uh, this bunch of penguins, with one penguin jumping up saying, I've got to be me. I've (laughs) got to be me. (laughs) Who am I? Uh, My name's Bob Rosenbaum. I uh, am a 72-year-old person living in Sacramento. Uh, Worked a long time as a psychotherapist, neuropsychologist. I've been meditating for 50 years or so, I'm a Zen teacher and a teacher of Dayan Qigong, uh, that's Wild Goose Qigong, which is a, a Taoist practice, which goes back about 2000 years or so. So mind, body, the universe, um, I've kind of been interested in such. It's an, inter- that it's an interesting things. topic,
0: right? <laughs> um, so, yeah. so have you been have you been a Zen meditator the entire time for 50 years? Or have you hopped around? Wow. Okay.
1: Well, I hopped around a little bit and my sister, um, helped John kabat set up the, uh, MBSR, the mindfulness-based stress reduction program. So I know John and the folks there, and I have lots of friends in the mindfulness community. So I, I certainly have done mindfulness meditation. Um, you know, that's become kind of a, commercialized thing uh it can be really really helpful uh let's talk
0: about people. that actually I, and and i don't let me forget i want to come back to your book right away but but sure. if you can just make clear because i don't think people are very clear on this and i'm actually not super clear on this um what would you say what is mindfulness as it is taught in kind of the mass media, the mindfulness that everyone hears about, the mindfulness that they hear about, they see in on magazine covers in the checkout lane at Whole Foods versus your understanding of, of meditation and maybe even a, a true mindfulness or, or Zen or something like that? How, how do you see the mindfulness trend?
1: Okay. Um, I, I should probably mention that I co-edited a book called What's Wrong with Mindfulness and What Isn't <laughs> a few years ago. Uh, and again, I want to emphasize mindfulness can be wonderful. And I have deep respect uh, and appreciation for my sister and for John Kabat-Zinn and for uh, really all the folks who are uh, working in this area. And having said that, I think mindfulness, as it's currently being taught, misses an important dimension. So John purposefully secularized mindfulness uh, when bringing it into a medical center. And he defines mindfulness as uh, paying attention on purpose in the present moment without judgment. Wonderful thing to do. A friend of mine, well, I'll just say I recently wrote an article called Mindfulness is Full Engagement. And being completely present ties you to the universe at large. Uh, There's a saying in Zen, you are not it, it's actually you. And the way mindfulness can be taught is, okay, this is basically a method of relaxation, and breathing and, and clearing your mind so that you can be attentive. But as I point in my book, point out in my book, that is not your mind. Everyone talks about mindfulness, but what's this mind that we're talking about? It's not my mind or your mind. It's the basis of, Living and dying, uh, scratching your head and laughing, uh, being miserable with the cold and having your nose run, and being in the heights of ecstasy. It, it doesn't exclude or include anything. It's not a special state. And when you teach mindfulness without the wider dimension, it becomes a method of Controlling experience, and really, mindfulness as it's taught in Buddhism is a way of uh, becoming aware of how how limited our awareness is, and then saying, "Huh, well, you know, if I'm not my thoughts, and I'm not because thoughts are just thoughts, and if I'm not my senses because senses are just senses, well." as you started off saying, who am I? (laughs) What am I? What's going on here? The many people who teach mindfulness start with uh, the first section of what's called the Satipatthana Sutra, the Buddhist sutra on mindfulness. And it's great. It, It says, pay attention to your breath, pay attention to what you're doing, be mindful of the thoughts within the thoughts. But then the next section is, okay, now you've done that. Now go out into a graveyard and sit by a rotting corpse and think, oh, <laughs>
0: yes, I've, I've done a lot of that in India and I highly recommend it. I think that would be a good corporate retreat for, for, yes, for, exactly. my...
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, so I, I, you know, talking about India, uh, I was very fortunate to go to India, uh, Oh, gosh, it's always a while ago now. It's 30 years ago now. It was about 1988. Uh, I was on a Fulbright teaching at the National Institute of Mental Health and Neuroscience. And I learned so much there. So uh, I got to the National uh, the Institute and I was scheduled to meet with Prabhu uh, for my first discussion with him of, of what I do. He was the head of the department. And I was supposed to meet with him at 10. I got there about 10 of 10. And his door was closed and it had a sign on it saying, please do not knock. So, of course, I sat down. I figured he's busy. I waited. 10 o'clock, 10, 10, somewhere around 10, 15. Someone rushed into his office without knocking, door closed. I figured, oh, there's some emergency going on. Somewhere around 10.30, I'm sitting there going, oh, this is India. Just get used to people not being on time. That's okay, Bob. You know, somewhere around 10.30, 10.35, probably came out chatting with this fellow. And he looked at me. He said, oh, Bob, you're here. I said, yeah. He said, "Um, how long have you been here? I said, well, I got here about 10 of 10. He said, you've been sitting here all that time. Well, why well I I said uh, your door was closed and it said please do not knock and he looked at me like something was wrong with me and he said yes that sign means just come in <laughs> don't knock just walk in and that's when I started to learn that relationships are can be... As or more important than the scheduled, this is what we're going to accomplish at this place at this
0: time. Um, yeah, I remember in all the my usual way that we go about business. I remember in um, all my time in India, uh, we we always call that IST, Indian Standard Time. Things right. are going to happen when they're going to happen.
1: <laughs> right. But they well, always seem to happen, happen at the right happen. time. And at, when I was in India, they, cell phones hadn't really come in yet. And so it was, and phones were unreliable. So it was kind of expected that if you wanted to meet with a friend, you'd just go over to their house and whatever they were doing, they would stop what they were doing and visit with you. Or they would say, oh, I'm doing such and such, come join me. And uh, this extended actually to uh, therapy sessions at the National Institute where I'd be meeting with a client. And another doctor would come in and say, um, oh, uh, Dr. Rosenbaum, I'm, I'm currently meeting with the client next door and such and such is happening and I'd like your ideas and I'm meeting with the client. And I'm going, I'm meeting with a client, I'm meeting. And my fellow doctor would turn to my client and say, oh, you're here too. Well, I'd like your opinion on what shall we do with the person next? <laughs> and this idea of I am the person in this room behind a closed door who exists apart from my interactions with others, I didn't exist. It it, it was, it was nonsense. Uh, We are only uh, all of our interactions. Uh, And so, you know, the, the title of my book, that is not your mind uh, sort of alludes to the fact that People think they have a mind, and then they have to control it, and that is the source of a lot of suffering.
0: Yeah, a huge for sure. amount of suffering, and it seems to me that the way that mindfulness has been adopted, particularly in Silicon Valley or or corporate America, is is as a technique of control. It's kind of like, well, yes. be, be mindful on your work. <laughs> uh, de- yes. Definitely, don't be mindful of the broader universe and go wandering right. off off the job. You know, like, that's that's not productive. So that's right. There's a great blogger that I have followed for a long time named David Chapman, who has a phrase that he, he called. He says consensus Buddhism. Um, and he says that, which is great. And he says, That's a great phrase. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, he's great. I've tried to get him on the podcast a lot, but he always refuses because he's, he's he's very he's very uh, uh, insular, I think. But um, uh-huh. but he, the, what he what he means by this is he kind of says that there were a, a series of political and marketing decisions made by Buddhism in America to yes. get it accepted and more popular. And to be fair, that has been a remarkable success. I mean, the 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 extent to which Buddhism is now accepted in America, it's, it's not seen as weird. It's seen as something admirable. It's seen as something yeah. that everyone says, oh, I wish I, I would do that if I had time. But, you know, they have no negative thoughts about it. But... Uh, what David Chapman said is that, you know, in order to do that, they sanitized it and left out all the fun stuff and and, and yeah. in fact, left out the real tradition. So, yes,
1: yes, uh, I, I agree. And my experience in working in clinics, uh, because as a neuropsychologist, I often worked with people who had pretty serious uh, illnesses um, Things they were not going to get better from. And uh, chronic pain, Huntington's disease, multiple sclerosis, uh, seizure disorders, things like that. And once they had gotten to the point of, okay, now I can be with this and not be frantically running around and I can be aware of, okay, this is what's going on, the next phase of awareness was, but I don't like it. (laughs) And there's this sort of idea of, well, if you can control it and be really aware of it, everything will be hunky-dory and it's not a lot of the time. And then what, and my experience was that people were hungry And are hungry for something which gives some sense of of meaning, uh, some sense of belonging, uh, some sense uh, of of something larger than than themselves. Uh, And I think mindfulness, as it's been commercialized, and again, I want to emphasize, I really think a lot of the folks in the MBSR community have tried very hard not to commercialize it. Um, it, as you said, it, it, it becomes a, a technique uh, of, of control, which can wind up disappointing.
0: Yeah. Uh, what were those? Com- what? I'm curious. What, what were some of those? If you want to go back there, what were some of those conversations like with people um, who were not going to get better? And what did in that in that in those moments? What were the what were the things that you fell back on to tell people from your own spiritual training? In and, well, and the, the real to moment, tell
1: people anything, but I do uh, try to listen and and respect. And actually, just before coming back to your question, the other aspect of mindfulness is it's become kind of manualized, and you know, do this, then do this, then do this, and. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, dialogue with Zen teacher Zhao Zhe, where someone says, What's meditation? And Zhao Zhu says, in Very Zen, you know, oh, it is not meditation. <laughs> and uh, the other person says, What do you mean? Meditation is not meditation. And Zhao Zhe looks at him and says, It's alive. And how do you maintain the aliveness? which is all over the place and it's messy and, and meditation, it's different every time. And when you try and pin it down to, okay, and it's going to be just like this. Uh, and so I've had many people say to me, I, I can't meditate. I don't know how to meditate and meditation's natural. It's, it's a natural state. Uh, everyone can, but coming back to your question of the sorts of things I would hear from people, uh, i Here's here's one example. So uh, as a neuropsychologist, I would sometimes do tests with people to see, okay, how's your thinking and your memory and whatnot. And I remember one patient I had who uh, had the Huntington's gene. And for those of your listeners not familiar with Huntington's disease, this is a disease where if you have the gene, you're going to get it. And generally you're going to get it somewhere around 50 years old or so. And over the next five years or so, once it starts, you're going to turn into a vegetable and die. I mean, it's 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 a terrible disease. And there's all kinds of controversies. of so Should I test and find out whether I have the gene? Should I have children? Things like that. But this person knew she had the gene. I had tested her to sort of establish, okay, everything's okay. I tested her a few years later, everything's okay. But on this occasion, I tested her and it was clear the disease was starting. So I said to her, well, I'm, I'm sorry to say the test results show, you know, you're, this, you're, you're starting the disease process. And she looked at me and she said, why do you say sorry? Why do you say you're sorry? And I was surprised because I knew she was understood what was happening. I said, well, you know, this is... disease is progressive and uh, you're in for a difficult time these next few years and your family is. And she looked at me and she said, don't say you're sorry. I am so glad and fortunate that I have this disease because knowing that I had this disease, I have been careful to live every single day the best I possibly could and to really live my life And frankly, I look around at all these other people running around and and being nervous and and grasping at this and grasping at that and not enjoying themselves. And I say, oh, you poor people, wake up. I mean, I'm so lucky to know I only had limited time. Um, And that's true. We all kind of forget the fact that, um, you know, any moment (laughs) – That could be it. (laughs) You could die. And one of one of the things that I try to convey to people is this whole notion of time. Time is not measured by clocks. Uh, Zen teacher Dogen once said, you know, the mind arises in a moment. And you think, oh yeah, that's true. And, And a moment arises in the mind, you think, huh, that's true too. What does that mean? To which Dogen says, this is a, the understanding that yourself is time. And you sort of hear that and you go, oh, that's another weird Zeny thing. But I think to rephrase it, I, the way I rephrase it is, you are the time of your life. That's who we are. <laughs> We're the way that our time unfolds. And if you ever feel like time is not your own, something's wrong. Hmm.
0: What do you mean Every by, moment is your moment. What do you mean by time is not your own? What would an example be?
1: Oh, where you feel like, okay, uh, I have to go pick up my kids uh, from the soccer game, but I don't really want to do it because, but I have to do it because it's their time now. Um, or I have to work for my employer and he's paying attention to my time down to the six minute mark, but it's, you know, I'm putting in my time for them, but it's not my time. Well, whose time is it? I mean, this, I, I, I think part of the violence and illness in our society is this feeling that we've lost control of our lives, which is, I mean, it's it's ultimately not true.
0: Why do you think um, that is? And do you think that's a new feeling that people have? Or has it always been that way?
1: I don't think it's always been that way. Hmm. Um, there are, you can go back to the Greeks, and there's a Greek poet who says something like, uh, a pox on the person who invented water clocks. I mean, before then I ate when I was hungry and I slept when I felt like sleeping, and now I have to wait until the water clock says it's time to eat. (laughs) Um, So it has been for a long time. uh, But just to give an example, uh, the Romans dealt with time by saying, okay, let's figure out how much. Uh, darkness there's going to be today let's figure out how much daylight there's going to be today okay we're going to divide the daylight into 12 hours and we're going to divide the darkness into 12 hours and those will be the hours for today so every day hours were a different length
0: Mm. wow
1: and uh their empire functioned pretty well that way you know and when you think about it That's a pretty good way of doing things, you know, to have uh, longer daylight hours during the summer and shorter daylight hours during the winter so that people can ask more.
0: And it would keep you Um, in contact with the actual process of the day rather than it being an abstraction.
1: Exactly. And in fact, you know, people think that clocks measure time. Clocks are ways of coordinating with each other. But every clock measures time differently. And if you talk to physicists, they they can demonstrate. uh, If you put a watch at the bottom of of, uh, Mount Everest and at the top, they'll tell different times. It depends on how fast the uh, things are moving. It depends on gravity Um, and atomic clocks. You know, these incredibly precise clocks um which measure you know 10 million vibrations per second or something like that they disagree with each other there's about 160 atomic clocks scattered around the world and for scientific purposes the way they figure out the time is they take a measurement at what's supposed to be a certain time they take all 160 clocks They figure out, well, this clock's been a little wonky lately. This clock's been okay. This clock, uh, there was a hurricane. And over three weeks or so, they complete all these calculations, and they show what all the clocks were doing, and they make all these adjustments, and they send out this data sheet of, this is what all the different times were at that time. (laughs) You can know what time it really was a month ago. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay.
0: But it's um, that's that's amazing. I didn't know that. That's uh, well. It suggests that the well. I I guess it it suggests to me that at least the way we're measuring time is purely a human abstraction. If you can't precisely measure it, then then what is it?
1: Exactly, exactly. But we pretend that it's real, and and then people um, have to be productive in a certain amount of time, which is kind of nuts. And, uh, well, here's a, a simple example. So right now in medical clinics, uh, physicians are generally required to see four to six patients per hour. And every patient has 10 to 15
0: minutes. That is nuts. That is insane. It yeah makes and no ver- Very sense. frustrating from the patient's perspective. It's like...
1: Yeah. And when I was young if you wanted to see a physician, you'd go into their office and they'd have office hours between 9 and 12 and you'd go in and you'd wait your turn. Yeah. And when it was your turn, if you had something simple, maybe they'd see you for a few minutes. If you had something complicated, maybe they'd see you for 45 minutes. They did what was necessary and nobody complained. And and so it's not like the system has to be 15 minutes for everyone it didn't used to be that way as as little as 40, 50 years ago. But now we've gotten into this productivity paradigm, which is uh, driving people crazy and, and frankly, making them ill.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always found that extremely frustrating. And particularly when you think of the hoops that people have to jump through just to get in front of a doctor with scheduling yeah. and insurance and Bills and it's just it's madness. And also, when you hear about how doctors and nurses, and in particularly doctors, have to drive themselves into the ground doing that, taking stimulants and trying to make up their their student debt Uh, in this productivity mindset, and how a lot of them just break down and become uh, drug addicts, uh, it's just madness. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, My brother in law's uh, was a physician. He's retired now. He worked for the same uh, HMO for uh, 25, 30 years. And maybe three or four years before he was going to retire, they took him, the administrators took him aside and said, "Uh, Dr. L, um, you've been seeing three to four patients per hour. And he said, yeah. And they said, well, the average year is four to six patients. And he said, yes, well, I've been here for, 25 years. And so most of my patient panel is elderly and they're complicated and they take a while. Oh, we understand that. So we're going to give you a choice. Uh, You can either uh, see four to six patients per hour and continue at your current pay, or you can take a pay cut and continue what you're doing. And I take my hat off to him. He said, I'll take the pay cut. Wow. Um, Because I can't do a good job this way.
0: Well, maybe this is a, that maybe this is a good hopping off point because one thing that I really wanted to talk to you about is just because we were talking about the medical profession, is your work in neuroscience and how yes. how that has um i'm I'm particularly interested in how that's informed your understanding of what's actually happening in the brain scientifically in during during meditative and you know bliss states and things like that. Sure. So
1: I was very, I I was not originally planning to be a neuroscientist, but uh, when I did my internship back in the mid seventies, I happened to wind up at the Boston VA where all the great neuroscientists of the world were there at that time. And they basically uh, showed me that some of the wonders of, Hey, you know, this brain and what's going on in the brain can actually affect you feel and think and some of these psychiatric issues and feeling issues are brain issues. So that was very helpful. Um, And as I continued in the field, um, I began to be aware of its limitations. So what's happening in the brain is very, very important. and The brain is not the mind. So when I've worked a lot with chronic pain patients and the neurology of pain, it's really important to know the neurology of pain. So it turns out a lot of patients who have pains in their organs and their viscera or who have chronic pain, the pain sort of moves around. Into d- different parts of their body. And that's because certain pain fibers don't give you good information about where the pain is. They basically say, something not good is happening here, pay, you know, deal with it. Um, other pain fibers tell you what kind of pain it is and where it is and whatnot. But the, the ones in the viscera don't tell you much. So a lot of patients, almost every chronic pain patient who's had pain which wanders around has had the experience of going into a physician saying well you know my pain used to be on that side but now it's over here and the physician says "Uh, it's all in your mind it's psychiatric and they just don't understand the the neurology a lot of physicians unfortunately are not trained in this so we need to know the neurology and There's a saying um, amongst chronic pain uh, professionals the strain in pain lies mainly in the brain. Actually, (laughs) sing it sometimes. The strain (laughs) lies mainly in the brain. But I like to modify that and say, yeah, that's true. But the mind, pain's bind unwinds when mind becomes more kind. And kindness, sure, there's various chemicals which float around in the brain when when you're being kind. But when you're being kind, it could be many different sets of chemicals. It could be many different patterns of neuronal discharges. Um, And so, one of my friends who's the head of research, at a certain kind of brain science uh, at UCSF, uh, when I was still into, oh, and meditation and the brain, and and he said, a lot of people are interested in finding out that the brain changes, you know, when you meditate. And my friend looked at me and said, what's the big deal? Your brain changes whatever you're doing. Mm. All the time, wow! And it's and it's true. And there's one study I like to cite where uh, there's a great study of, of mindfulness where they show structural brain changes with you know just a few sessions of meditation uh, for twenty minutes each. Um, the thing is, they did a comparison group where they did just a few sessions of 20 minutes each, which got the same brain changes from 20 minutes in a tanning salon.
0: (laughs) Okay. It it was the same brain changes, (laughs) same brain changes. Okay. And so do you think that was just from relaxing?
1: Well, yes. uh, A lot of it's just from relaxing and there's actually the head of, of brain, the, the, the Brain Project, which is trying to map the the brain, and it was an initiative under Obama, lots of money going into it, has has said you're going to read in the in the uh, papers that uh, we found the spot which does this, and we found we know the way the brain does that, and don't ever believe them. Hmm. We have almost no idea of what's going on. Everything that you're seeing in in the papers is you know, quirky little experiments, which are rarely replicated. And the whole brain is active all the time. And while it's true that certain locations are more likely than not to have certain kinds of activities, it's all over the place. So for just as an example, it's only recently we learned that when, um, When we're having a conversation and you're seeing my lips move, the visual information that you're getting from my lips is not being processed by your visual cortex. It's being processed by your auditory cortex. Huh, okay. Which makes sense because we're having a conversation. Interesting. And, you know, you want to sit with the brain and say, wait a second, that's the, it, it's visual, so it ought to go to the visual cortex. And the brain says, well, that, that just doesn't work so well for that's us. That's
0: interesting. Well, let, let me ask and, you this. I, yeah. I'm curious. I've, I've done a lot of personal experimentation with trans, uh, transcranial direct stimulation. Yes. Where I've just basically just been sticking electrodes to my head and following mm-hmm. the, the DARPA, you know, this DARPA technology, following the guide. Mm-hmm. And the idea is if you put the, if you run the current through different parts of your head, you'll get different um, phenomena, such as focus or it, uh, better mathematic processing or better music sense mm-hmm. and on and on. And it all seems to work as, as, you know, as it says on the can, it could have obviously be, be placebo effect, a hundred percent. But it, it seems it seems to it seems there seems to be something to it, at least something, even if it's subtle. So oh,
1: there's definitely something to it. Okay, it, it's it's just that um, if you did it on first of all, um, the resolution of our ability to look at the brain. Right now, a single voxel. Um, so a, a voxel is like a pixel, but it's three dimensional on ah, okay. brain okay. scans. Okay, represents about ten thousand neurons. So, what's going on in those ten thousand neurons? I mean, hard to say. Maybe it's some dance of the neurons. Maybe it's Uh, The more we discover about the brain, the more we realize things are not going the way they're supposed to, like um, glial cells, which do not have anything to do with, um, I shouldn't say that, Uh, glial cells support neurons, but they don't directly transmit anything from one neuron to another, but they influence it. So we thought those were just silent. Well, it turns out that those are crucial um, to how things work, and now some medications are working for chronic pain are working on glial cells. We know that the gut biome, the microbiome, affects the brain. Um, we know that stress affects the brain. The point is, it's it's a whole system, and if you did the transcranial uh, stimulation on three different days, you might mu- there's a pretty good likelihood. That you could get the same results on those three different days from three different brain activations. Slightly different, mind you. I mean, they're not going to be wildly different, like, you know, instead of a, a frontotemporal connection, it's suddenly going to be a back of the brain connection.
0: So you mean different but positions of the electrodes?
1: Different positions of the, the electrodes, different firings of the neurons, So that, for example, well, it's been some time now, but a a while ago, there was a study where they stimulated a single neuron and uh, uh, a patient undergoing brain surgery, and uh, the patient saw the face of Jennifer Aniston.
0: (laughs) You know, Where where's the, so I want that said, neuron Right, right <laughs> on a regular and, so basis. They,
1: and so there was just all this You know uh, uh, To do about We found the Jennifer Aniston neuron We yes. obviously have
0: a neuron ha- for everything Having been a teenager what, in the 90s I, I, that, I, yeah. I, I probably have a few of those <laughs> Right
1: <laughs> uh, What they didn't say is If you stimulated that neuron another time You might get the face of another person if you stimulated that single neuron another time, you might get a feeling and not a face. And if you stimulated a different neuron, you might get the face of Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> so see, the brain isn't
0: locked down. Well, that that sounds like there's no causal connection then.
1: Well, we don't know what the causal connections are. Um, the, the current theories... I, you know, there's debate in this field and you'll certainly find neuroscientists who are saying we've, we're finding this place and do this. And, but I'd say the trend in the field is towards saying neurons are complex systems. They're constantly shifting and changing like the weather and the climate. And, uh, basically when we have a memory we create the memory. When we have a feeling, we create the feeling and the brain organization is different each time. Um, and we're still trying to figure it out, but it's it's more like you, you were in India. It's, it's more like the dance of uh, the gods <laughs> than it is you know, the Ten Commandments engraved in stone.
0: Well, let me ask you this. When you're, when you're saying the, the mind is not the brain, which certainly has been my conclusion as well, but when you're saying the mind is not the brain, are you talking from a physiological perspective there or your own meditative, you know, your own intuitive sense of things?
1: Well, both of them. Um I've been meditating for 50 years and some kind of interesting things can happen in meditation after you've been doing it for 50 years. Um, But within the, the, in my book, you know, that is not your mind. One of the things I like to do is follow the sutra and And in the sutra, of of the Surangama Sutra, uh, the Buddha spends some time with his disciple Ananda. Incidentally, the sutra is one of the few sutras which starts out with a sex scene, which is kind of cool.
0: (laughs) Well, that's good marketing. And
1: and basically, Ananda goes uh, on his begging rounds and... uh, He goes to a brothel because you know they can contribute too, and a beautiful woman who's actually ensorcelled with a demonic spell. Uh, starts caressing him and and they start getting it on and he's about to break his vows when the buddha realizes what's happening and sends this magic mantra to rescue him and the woman and bring them to the grove and ananda is 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 terribly mortified says oh i'm so sorry i'm so sorry you know how i was about to break my vows and the buddha says um, don't worry about being sorry ananda let's let's get to the bottom of this i mean Uh, how did you get into this? He says, well, I mean, she was so beautiful. I I, I wanted her. And the Buddha says, well, so what made you want to follow me? He says, well, I saw this dazzling light emitting, you know, from the Buddha and, and the 32 marks of enlightenment. And the Buddha says, so what did you see me with? And what did you see her with? He says, well, with my eyes. And what did you want her with? And what did you want me with? Well, my mind, the Buddha says, oh, Ananda, that is not your mind. (laughs) (laughs) You're mistaking the objects of mind. The sensation, the objects of sensation with mind itself. So there's another point in the sutra where everyone's saying, we don't understand, we don't get it. And the Buddha kind of sighs. "Okay, look, let's try again. And he rings a bell. He says, you hear the bell? Everyone goes, yeah. And the bell fades away. He says, now do you hear the bell? They go, no. He says, let's try it again. Rings the bell. you hear it? Yes. Fades away? No. Does it a third time. And he says to everyone, why are you giving such wrong answers? And they say, what do you mean? We heard the bell, and then it faded away, and we didn't hear the bell. He says, you, when the bell faded away, you had to hear that you were not hearing the bell your mind includes everything you're not experiencing and sensing as well as everything that you are, which when you stop and think about it, it's like, Oh, so everything I'm not aware of is part of the mind as well. (laughs) That's a different view of mind. This is getting into deeper waters, but great. uh, Um this is part of what's called mind-only school of of Buddhism, but it's a it's an incorrect or misleading idea. It's not that everything is the mind. It's that there's no there are no things which stay put. That everything's fluid and constantly changing. And it's that total happening. Which, for lack of a better word, we call mind, in which we're part of, and so it's it's experiencing the connected, ever flowing uh, vibrancy of that, which is mind. Uh, I mean, what if you and I talking right now? Um, that the words which pass within us are, we're each a neuron in the great brain of the universe, and the words which are passing between you and I are the neurotransmitters.
0: (laughs) As long as I get to be next to the Jennifer Aniston neuron, then I'm I'm right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) I'm quite happy with being minuscule. (laughs) That's right.
1: Well being completely minuscule and completely uh, beyond measurement.
0: Yeah. I've often thought that, uh, well, not often, not often. Recently, I've been thinking that Buddhism basically is just a a technology for orienting to to time, dealing with the fact that it's constant, you know, we're in time and we can't fix it in place yes. which is what obviously the source of all of our suffering is trying to get all of our suffering is trying to get things to stop changing. Yes. But you yes. can't. And it's not possible, so. Yeah, your I, mind has to accept that. Yes.
1: Uh, nobody really knows what time is. Nobody really knows what space is. I mean, the physicists really debate about this. And it's, it's not clear. Uh, there's one school of, of physics, which says, you know, every moment exists always has existed, will exist is existing. Always. We just go from moment to moment. <laughs> and so it looks like they're strung out in a line, but they're all there all the time, mm. um, which actually fits with Buddhism, uh, very well. Whether th- I don't have the mathematics to be able to evaluate these, these complex physical uh, uh, models, but they are just models. And it really affects the way we approach our lives. I, I like to say when I'm talking about you are the time of your life, that means you don't change from one thing to another. When you're a kid, you're not a half-grown adult when you're 72 like i am you're not a decayed adult you are who you are who you are but our society likes to kind of push people into thinking oh well i've got a ways to go or well you know not much time left i don't know when i'll die but i know i have my whole life ahead of me
0: Well, on that note, tell, talk about liberation, because if I'm correct, so you you focused in your book on the Sarangama Sutra, but you talk a lot about being liberated through your sensory life. And so yes. I'm curious why you why you chose this sutra in particular and what the what the prescription for liberation is. Uh,
1: a prescription for liberation? <laughs> appreciate every moment. It's it's really that simple. Uh, that takes a little training, though. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> and it, it, um, it, what attracted me to this sutra uh, is because it deals with sensory and perceptual phenomena, and as a neuropsychologist, uh, I'm attracted to it. And I loved the fact that it started with sex. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, which very you know, has been catching. a problem in, in Buddhism. Uh, how, how so? In terms of... How so? Well, uh, because Buddhism came to us from a monastic model, we're basically... Um, you had to be in a monastery or uh, the equivalent of a Buddhist convent, you know, to get enlightened. Actually, couldn't be a woman you'd, you'd, to and get enlightened in the patriarchal Buddhism. Although there's a great sutra which
0: goes says otherwise. Anyway, which which one is that? Um, just so people can look it up if they want.
1: Oh, in the Vimalakirti Sutra, there's a place where. A goddess comes and she's this completely enlightened goddess and she visits, I believe it's Shariputra. And uh, Shariputra says, but, but you can't be completely enlightened. You're a woman. And the goddess says, oh, really? And she goes, poof, and turns Shariputra into a woman. <laughs> and Shariputra goes, and she says, now do you think that you can't be enlightened if you're a woman? <laughs> It's turn me back, turn me back, okay, woman, male, (laughs) (laughs) doesn't matter. (laughs) The Vimalakirti Sutra is uh, an amazing sutra. Um, Anyway, uh, in terms of prescription for liberation, there's a section in the sutra where it says, you know, you're going to have all these weird experiences they'll all be okay as long as you don't think you're a sage. Um, And that's really good advice. Yes. You know, to understand that we can't understand that understanding, there's a section in the sutra where the Buddha says, you know, an enlightened to which understanding is added can't be true mind because... You're adding something to it. And an enlightenment to which understanding is missing can't be enlightenment or true mind cause it's missing something. So you have to get beyond have it and don't have it, is and is not. And um, embrace fully that which you cannot grasp but are completely involved in. It's, it's very hard to put into words, but the first step is to realize, oh, I have a very, very teensy boxed in view of what life and death are, and me and you are. That's the first step. And then to let go of that a bit, and then explore without ever well one of the ways i'll instruct people to meditate is okay just sit down and don't add anything and don't subtract anything from what you're experiencing and don't believe that what you're experiencing is actually what it is
0: people hate that (laughs) but why (laughs) how do they respond to that (laughs) well it, it
1: it it takes away all of your props yeah you know and people say well but how do i do that um it's not about doing and it's not
0: about you very confusing
1: it's very confusing <laughs> and confusing confusion is a good step along the way yes. but we shouldn't be attached to confusion just like we shouldn't be attached to understand it um uh It's So here's a good exercise for liberation. I I always enjoy this one. Whenever I wake up in the morning, I kind of rub my eyes and look around and I go, how did that happen? How did I wake up? (laughs) And I kind of try to feel my way into that. It's like, oh, hmm. And that's going on all the time. It, that the cells in our body are waking up and going to sleep. You can ask yourself as you go to sleep, how is this happening? I mean, if it's if it's you doing it, you're gonna get in the way, and you get frustrated. If it's not you doing it, well then who is it?
0: Magic trick. Yeah.
1: Well, that's actually you just summarized the Surangama Sutra in a way. <laughs> You know, everything that you think and feel, uh, it's kind of a magic trick. So approaching it with a sense of wonder and awe and delight, even when you're feeling bad, is very helpful. Um, It's it's not so easy when you're feeling pain and feeling upset to go, oh, this is kind of cool. But it's you can train yourself to do it.
0: Yeah, you mentioned earlier, you said you know, it requires training and and there was I at least perceived a bit of a, an exasperated um, edge to that. but but actually, I really like the fact that it is trainable because that means it's not, you know, I think a lot of people approach spirituality with the special person syndrome like the idea mm-hmm. that I, either I'm a spiritual person or I'm not either. I'm right. uh, And they approach everything as either I'm good at this or not. And if somebody tries right. it and they're, they, they don't immediately get the result and they're like, well, I'm not good at this. And then they go to the next thing. So right. I really like to approach spirituality, like physical exercise. I mean, if you can train it, mm-hmm. yeah, then, then it's doable. Then it's, you know, it's just a question of putting the effort in. And that, that, that I think actually is very, very liberating for people to realize it's just, well, you just oh, need yes. to kind of like, Practice yes,
1: it. yes that that's why you know in zen we emphasize practice practice and realization same thing and you can physical exercise is a good example it's one of the reasons i teach qigong and and uh have a physical uh practice uh You can train and train and train, and on a certain day, everything comes together, and it's wonderful, and it's just effortless, and the next day you go, okay, wow, that was really cool. I'm going to do that again, and it's awful. (laughs) Nothing works, and uh, if you don't train, you're never going to get anywhere as close I mean, you'll never have the opportunity to experience the these ups and downs. If you do train, sometimes the magic happens. Actually always the magic happens, but it doesn't always happen the way we right. want it to
0: happen. Yeah, that's really important, I think, for people to that's something that Buddhism is super good at communicating. It's just don't don't get hung up on the, the results because you don't really right. know why they're happening and they may never happen again. Um, and in terms of the magic always happening, yeah, I think that for me, at least in my life, one really clear way to, to 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 think about that, even without spiritual terms, in terms of being grateful for your experience, even when it's really bad, is just to think, well, at least I'm alive. Yes, you know, it's like <laughs> right? like every day above yes. ground is a good day. You know, it's like yes, that's yes. That, and yes. that'll that'll shift uh, my consciousness real quick.
1: Yes, and. Uh, I was teaching qigong one day uh, and I was teaching a particularly difficult movement. And my teacher happened to be walking through the room while I was teaching the class. And I and she heard me say, so I've been doing this 15 years or so and I figure another five, maybe 10 years and, and maybe I'll, I'll kind of have it. And my teacher stopped and said, oh, Bob, no, not another five or 10 years. And she paused and smiled and she said, whole life, Bob, Uh. whole life. (laughs) And that's, I'm so grateful to have her and her husband as teachers. Her husband was a master calligrapher um, and, you know, with his calligraphy in museums around the world. And he wrote, when he was 90 years old, he wrote for one of his books. So I started learning calligraphy when I was six. When I was 70, my brush started to obey my intention. When I was 80, I started to see how the round and the square are basically the same thing. And now that I'm 90, I see there's so much more to learn.
0: (laughs) That's great. (laughs)
1: That's great. and I can honestly say, every time I sit down to meditation, and every time I do Qigong, something different opens up, and it's it's amazing. it's it's literally inexhaustible, which is wonderful,
0: yeah, which I, doesn't mean yeah. I don't
1: get exhausted <laughs>
0: I right. Do. but and it always seems to get deeper in my. Perspective, yeah, it's phenomenal. This has been an awesome conversation. I'd love to have another conversation. For now, uh, where can people find your book?
1: Ah, uh, uh, thank you for asking. I tend to forget <laughs> such things. Um, uh, my book's available on Amazon uh, and in uh, on Shambhala website. Uh, just Google "That Is Not Your Mind." Uh, for my website, you can either uh, Google Zen Qigong, that's Z E N Q I G O N G dot com, or Meadow Mind, M E A D O W, like the Meadow Mind dot net. Um, I just like somehow the, I love hiking and mountain meadows. So the mind as a meadow, Meadow Mind, I, I liked putting that
0: on my uh, website that's great that's great okay well let me end with a with an important and possibly controversial question oh okay which is for you know the first part is for people who are want to begin meditating what would you suggest the best course of action would be and the second part of that is do you think that people should get hung up on what what school of meditation to to follow that's the controversial okay. bit I don't I do, have, so, I do have opinions about that, but
1: well, in terms of getting hung up on what school you should try it, try a school, um, see how it works for you. I mean, give it at least, you know, a month or two or three. If it if it doesn't feel like something's in alignment, I mean, I'm not talking about feeling difficult. I'm feeling like something yeah this is right trust yourself and look for a different approach the, the, there's no no one approach as a monopoly uh, actually in the Surangama sutra 20 there's a section where 25 uh, sages talk about oh i did it this way no i did it this way um in terms of what to do the first thing to do is set aside a place End time. Because nothing happens till you do that. You may need to talk with people in your family about you know, during this 10 minutes, I'm not answering the phone. Um you knock on the door. I mean, you smell smoke and see flames, you you interrupt it, but just getting 10 minutes uninterrupted is key. And then you really don't have to do anything, but pick up any book on meditation and follow the breath or count the breath or um, relax. Um, But basically spend 10 minutes and the basic message from the Surangama Sutra is whatever you are doing, Go to the enlightened basis of what you're, of what's happening this moment. That's great. Um, and then you'll find I have no idea what I'm doing, <laughs> <laughs> and you'll start looking around for, for ways to help you.
0: And practically, practice that's that's wonderful. Practically speaking, are, how do you where where do you where are you at on the what time of day to meditate question? I'm taking it down to total practical things, I tend to tell people first thing in the morning, but
1: I. I find it works best for me first thing in the morning. And so for many years, I I just got up. Well, like when my kids were young, I got up a little bit before them and I'd meditate. And I said to my kids, uh, you can come in uh, if you want, but uh, I'm not going to talk or move or do anything. And one of my daughters would occasionally come in and sit with me. And the other daughter came in once, sat down for about a minute, said, this is stupid. It <laughs> got That's up great. and didn't resume meditating for 30 years.
0: <laughs> Very funny.
1: But if I may offer one other piece of yes. suggestion, the Dalai Lama has said, um, his practice is kindness. Um, sit down for 10 minutes and just be kind or just, look for compassion knowing that compassion is not a feeling that you have to generate. Compassion is in the air we breathe all around us. So contact or touch or find, look for, reach for, compassion and kindness and, uh, that's a really good way to, to start and to continue. And you'll probably experience some difficulties along the way. And those difficulties will help you learn how to stay in touch with compassion and kindness when you and others most need it. it it's kind of simple. It yeah. doesn't mean it's easy, but it's basically simple and just natural.
0: Wonderful. That's probably a good place to end on. Thank you very much for being on the show. And, and I, I, I really appreciate Your time. All right. hope you really enjoyed that. Make sure to meet us in our new mastering meditation class at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Not only the greatest magic.me course yet, but also the greatest meditation course on the planet, at least the internet part of the planet. I will see you there. Magic.me, Mastering Meditation. Scroll down to the course list on the front page of the site. It is right there. See you in class.